Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and before we dive into today's episode, if you're new here, I just want to say welcome. I'm so excited that you've found us. You might be wondering what this podcast and corresponding blog are all about. So in this podcast, we relate everything back to motivation, but not the hustle and grind kind. We talk about truly sustainable motivation that keeps you feeling energized and engaged in your life for the long haul. We talk about why I'm just not motivated is a myth and why the type of motivation you have is so important to fully understand. If you're ready to learn about motivation and respecting your body in an effective way so you can live a life you truly love, you are in the right place. Check out the foundational episodes of the Motivation Made Easy podcast using the links in the show notes or by going to drshawnhondorp.com forward slash one, two, three, and four, or you can just go to the website and you will see all of those there. And if you're ready to take that first step, if you're feeling sort of ungrounded in your values or you're not really sure, you're feeling kind of overwhelmed or a lot of decision fatigue, maybe you're feeling anxious or you're kind of like, what is this anti-dieting approach really about? What my very favorite strategy to work on with people and frankly also within my online program the by far everyone said that this was their favorite strategy is clarifying your values so this is the very most crucial thing to do in developing autonomous and sustainable motivation so what you're doing with clarifying your values is looking at different areas that different people might value and tying it to things that truly matter to you. So to get started with the first few steps with this, grab the free guide at drhondorp.com forward slash goals, and you're going to be walked through step by step to get really clear on what matters to you so you can start focusing on living a life you truly value. I promise you, you are not going to regret this. And before we dive into today's content today, just a reminder that all information in this podcast and blog are for educational and informational purposes only and should never be construed as any form of professional advice. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and I am incredibly excited to bring you this conversation today. 
as you likely know, one of my goals is to help people move away from ineffective dieting strategies so you can get off this you know, cycling of feeling incompetent, losing faith in yourself, and actually spend time and effort on things that are effective in improving your health. So I realized in doing this episode that I have a lot to say on this topic, so I'm going to try to keep it brief here as much as I can. But if you are interested in learning more about these types of topics, uh, please let me know because I can do you know some different episodes where I can talk a little bit more about my personal experiences with pursuing a very different birth experience with my second uh, kiddo. So I was introduced to Dr. Osmer during the middle of my second pregnancy. I was planning and hoping to have a vaginal birth following having an unplanned C-section for my first birth. And essentially, I really went down a deep dive into all things not just natural birth, that wasn't actually my main goal. I did end up having an unmedicated birth, but that was just to make sure that I had, um, didn't have to have a repeat C-section or at least try to do everything I could. So I was doing all of the things to feel like I was controlling the things that I could control. And so one of those things was seeing Dr. Osmer. And I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure I probably wouldn't have seen a chiropractor maybe ever if that hadn't happened to me, maybe I would eventually, but I'm so grateful to have met Dr. Asmer. I have learned so much from her. I learned so much in this interview, and I'm still to this day literally learning from her. I actually don't actively see her, so challenging this myth that we talk about of once you go to a chiropractor, do you still have to go? The answer is no, you can go back if you need to. But I'm still learning from her in terms of what I need to do and and ways to actually effectively heal my body uh, postpartum. So it's kind of a fascinating field. And basically, like many of our fields, there's a long way we need to go in order to get everyone, but particularly women, evidence-based information about what's going to actually improve their health. So in this interview, we cover what chiropractic care is. Is it legit? Is it not? We talk about my skepticism and how basically Dr. Osmer very much quickly proved me wrong. We talk about common myths and uh, misconceptions, like does it have to involve cracking, or once you start going, will you always have to go? And we also talk about what functional medicine is. That's another area that Dr. Osmer practices in and knows a lot about. And we cover some of the common ways that standard medical care can miss things and how chiropractic care or functional medicine providers can be a useful complement. I am a big fan of standard medical care in many areas, but it misses the mark in many areas. So this is a super important conversation. And what I hope is that this will bring you a kind of a more broad-based view of how maybe, maybe get rid of your skepticism if you're like me. And there can be ways that you might be able to benefit. And this, you know, Dr. Osmer does focus on the, um, you know, prenatal and postpartum period for women particularly. But I do know that many of these things have applications to everyone um, in terms of ways to think about how we can look outside of the standard medical model for improving our symptoms. There's a really 
great opportunity for improvement in our medical system. I think most of us know that. And so super excited to bring you this conversation. Let's dive in. All right, so today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Teresa Osmer. Dr. Osmer is the founder of Flow Chiropractic. She received her Doctor of Chiropractic from National University of Health Sciences near Chicago, Illinois in 2012. She has additional postgraduate training in prenatal and postpartum care, pediatrics, functional rehabilitation, ergonomics, athletic taping, and lifestyle medicine. Dr. Osmer also has the Webster certification, Mercier therapy certification, and recently completed her training to to become a certified functional medicine practitioner. So we're going to talk a little bit today about what all of that means. But Dr. Osmer was born and raised in Michigan. She grew up in Owasso as the oldest of five girls. She attended Michigan State University, Go Green, for her human biology degree with a specialization in bioethics and humanities, which I also have, by the way. (laughs) And following graduation, Dr. Osmer and her husband moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, outside of Flow, her chiropractic practice, she is very involved in the Grand Rapids community with the Junior League of Grand Rapids and Grand Rapids Community Foundation as a 100 new philanthropist. In her free time, she enjoys spending time with her family, including her golden retriever. What? How do you say his name? Rube Salsa. Okay. I, I was going to mess it up. <laughs> her nephew, August, her niece, Savannah. She loves cooking, traveling, and is a self proclaimed mermaid. She's happiest in the water or on the beach. So welcome, welcome to the Motivation Made Easy podcast, Dr. Osmer. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And a little background for the listeners. This is my first in-person podcast interview ever. All the rest of them have been done via Zoom. And so Dr. Osmer's behind the scenes in the studio here. We're both sitting on what are these things called? Exercise balls. Oh, okay. I thought so, it was like something, some official name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if there are any like weird squeaky sounds, <laughs> it's just the ball. <laughs> yes. So there's a little, just a little setting the scenes for you all and super excited. And after this, we'll probably go sit out on the deck and enjoy the nice weather and maybe an adult beverage. So who's to say? <laughs> So let's dive in and get started. Can you tell us more about your personal story and how you became so interested in this field and getting the vast amount of certifications that you have? Yes. (laughs) So I was always healthcare track. Like I remember writing a letter to myself after I learned about the bones in middle school. I said, promise yourself that you will become a doctor, specifically an orthopedic surgeon, which is like a very strange thing for a middle schooler to even think. But as I think we'll talk about later in this podcast about like intrinsic motivation and things like that, there was, there's a reason because I didn't always have the best follow through on things. So I felt like I had to write that to myself, but Hmm. um, my dad is a surgeon and I always felt healthcare track was what I was supposed to do. Again, being the oldest for all of my oldest um, of uh, siblings, people out there, you know what it's like. Um, and when it came down to it, as I'm going through my college education, I started to like dread my future, which is not a great feeling, like feeling like I had to be on call. I had to like be in these life and death situations with people because 
that's what my dad did. So that was my image of healthcare. Um, and I, you know, I met somebody towards the end of my college education who was going to be going to chiropractic school. And I was like, Hmm, that sounds like fun. Never been to a chiropractor before. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I applied to school and ended up at National, who has more of, um, they're a very evidence-based school, very medically minded, um, and it just really fit me and my personality and my background. So that's kind of how I ended up here in the field of chiropractic. Okay. And you, did you go straight through right after undergrad then? I did, yeah. And um, I actually could have graduated, I very type A personality, but could have graduated college in three years. I like really busted through trying to get all of my prereqs for med school because I just was so nervous about how old I would be when I'd be done with all of the training, you know? And then I was like, okay, like kind of my fourth year of college, I took a beat. I took some more fun classes. I took a drug and alcohol abuse class, which I think every college student should take. That was fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, we took some great classes and just like had time to really figure out like if that chiropractic route was for me. Mm -hmm. And I felt almost kind of rested going into chiropractic school, even though I did go right after. Nice. So did you ever go the med school application route or no. you had enough time to decide that that pivot was right for you and you ultimately seems like you're pretty happy with the pivot you yes, made. I am and you know at the time it was kind of like future Teresa I can worry about how this pans out but I just I wanted to have something that I was going to do like I needed to know what that next step is because as anybody who has a human bio degree there are very limited things you can do with it without um, going into another higher level training so mm -hmm. yeah okay interesting so let's talk about chiropractic care in general let's talk about why someone might consider chiropractic care and maybe even a, a bit more background might be helpful of like how it is different and then standard medical care but then maybe how it isn't and mm -hmm. so that's multiple questions in one yeah. but yeah let's let kind of just go for your your thoughts on your field and Mm -hmm. I clearly love it. I do. And I love the approach of taking kind of a whole person like biopsychosocial model to really understand who that person is. I just had a great consultation yesterday, a report of findings um, for a functional medicine patient. And it's so important that I get to know people <clears throat> before developing any type of treatment plan for them. Because even if it's something like an objective test result, it can mean so many different things or my approach can be so different depending on who that person is. And that's what I just, I love about the training with chiropractic. I have time to get to spend with my patients um, that sometimes I think is a little lacking in mainstream medicine with how short visits can be and, and how you kind of get lost in the shuffle. Maybe your healthcare provider doesn't really know you as a person. Mm -hmm. So I really found that to be so valuable and surprising about my training with chiropractic. Mm -hmm. um, I truly believe, and I'll tell this to patients that even if you're not hurting, get established with somebody because there may be that time when something does happen and we don't know what your baseline is. We don't know what's normal for you. Is it normal that you can't touch your toes or is that like because of an injury that you're having? So I think it's so beneficial for everyone, just like having an eye doctor, a dentist, a primary care doctor. It's great to just get established with somebody who can start to maybe see when the wheels are starting to, to fall off a little bit um, because prevention is so much more 
valuable to us than being reactive when something is already happening. So I think as a chiropractor, you can really identify those, those things. Yeah. So I think that's one of the myths probably is that you should only go if you're hurting or you should only go if like standard treatments aren't working. You would challenge that. It sounds like I would. Absolutely. And not to say that you have to go rain or shine once a month, like otherwise bad things are going to happen to you. I don't believe that at all. And there are some patients who just know their body and that's, they feel the best doing that. Um, and I always try to, to talk to them about different things outside of just that adjustment outside of their alignment, what other things might be going on in their life. What other new things like today I had a patient, she's, she's that picture. Like she likes to come in once a month, but she sprained her ankle a week ago and had no, um, idea what to even, it was her first time ever spraining the ankle as a 30 something year old woman had no idea how to even approach it. So we were able to take that time, that monthly visit to talk about that and give her some things to work on. So, yeah. So that question of like, when should someone consider seeking care? So anytime, anytime. (laughs) Yeah. Get established with somebody and find somebody that you vibe with. I think that's Mm -hmm. super important and and that might take time to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like any provider or any profession. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what are some of the myths that you come across in chiropractic care? Oh, that it is addictive, that your body has to get, like, once you start getting adjusted, your body has to continue getting adjusted. Otherwise, I don't know what will happen, but (laughs) I feel like that is like one of the biggest myths and the things that I will hear from people when they find out I'm a chiropractor. That's one of the first Mm -hmm. things like, oh, I heard um, that you have to go forever once you start. Yeah. And where that comes from is that they probably have maybe met somebody who goes and sees a chiropractor regularly, even though they're not hurting. And it's maybe they don't understand that full story. Like, why would you do that? And it's kind Mm -hmm. of like getting your teeth cleaned every six months. You're just looking for that proactive opportunity to help somebody before something else occurs. So I think that's one of the biggest, um, I think that's one of the biggest myths out there, um, that I hear. Mm-hmm. What about, do you have to, um, have cracking occur in chiropractic care? Is that, is that a myth or not? I actually don't know for sure yeah. the answer. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, it's always like, what is that sound? Like I can remember doing sleepovers and like cracking each other's backs. Like, yeah. did you ever do like walking well, on each other's backs? Other people when... did, but it freaked me out. It did? I, okay. I was very anxious to come to see you the first time because, and I, we can go into that any want, but I was like, and I actually still get a little nervous about it. I don't know yeah. why. It weirds me out. Yeah. <laughs> and you do, like, especially when you get that, like, neck adjustment, that cervical adjustment, you can have a little adrenaline rush for sure. Um, I'm the exact same way. I'm very particular about who adjusts my neck. My husband's also a chiropractor. It drives him crazy because I just, like, I'm like, nope, I can only have my best friend Callie crack my neck. She's the best at it um, because I guard so bad. So um, the cracking though is not, that does not tell us that you've had a good adjustment. All that's telling us is that there was um, gas bubbles in that synovial fluid, just like you, you know, can crack your knuckles. Um, That's just gas bubbles leaving that synovial fluid. And it takes about a half hour for it to build up again. So you can't crack your knuckle again right away. So Mm -hmm. that's the only thing it tells us, but not all of your joints, like your SI joints in your low back, those are not that same style joint. They're not that synovial joint. So we really don't get that same cavitation or cracking sound that happens. We're just looking to restore that range of motion and we want to see improvements, whether it's in 
reported um, pain levels or to retest functional outcomes, to um, look visually at alignment, like leg length, hip height, shoulder height, things like that. Are we seeing a change? Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's a lot of things that you do that involve no cracking, right? I mean, I know when I came for like help with having the birth that I wanted, that we did do the neck crack thing that I forget what it's called, but <laughs> that was only a small part of it. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, with pregnancy, I really do try to avoid that rotational cracking adjustment through the low back. And I'll do it on some patients, depending on what they have going on to get a little bit more range of motion out of their treatments. But a lot of times you're right. It can be more about the soft tissue work where we're identifying trigger points or hypertonic muscles, muscle imbalance, maybe a tight ligament like the sacrotuberous ligament that um, binds your tailbone to your sit bone on each side that can be problematic with pregnancy. Um, so there is also that soft tissue component to treatment. Okay. So when I came to you for the first time, I did it because I was like, I'm doing all the things to try to have um, the birth that I want. Someone recommended you, and I was like, okay, but I was very skeptical. I don't know. I'm sure I didn't share that with you. Why would I? Not skeptical of you. In fact, when I met you, I was like, okay, this is, like, legit, and I'm totally in, and I get it now. Somewhat. I still have more to understand, which is why we're here. But there's probably a lot of people that feel that way, right? Like, that chiropractors aren't evidence-based or that it's, like, not scientific, which I very much do not believe anymore, but mm -hmm. do you get that a lot? Oh yeah, for I, sure. I oh yeah. I get that all the time. Um, I mean, when I, uh, told my parents I was going to go to chiropractic school, my dad planned an intervention for me where we sat down to talk about an alternative life plan. Oh, and no. he has come around since, um, when he went to medical school back in the seventies, um, the whole field of chiropractic had a very bad rap associated with it. And there, you know, maybe at that time wasn't a lot of evidence, but we are, I mean, there are so many different organizations within chiropractic that are doing amazing things with their evidence-based research. And I did go to a school that we, we had classes on evidence-based and how to learn, how to look at research and to be able to apply it in a clinical setting, because that is evidence-based clinical practice is you can interpret that, but then a patient may not fit into that mold. So that's also helping a patient to understand that, like, yes, I'm going to follow the evidence. Um, and, but I'm also going to explain to you why you may not fit in that mold. It's all about how you communicate with that patient and to understand where they may be coming from with their skepticism. And I really try not to take it personally because I know I, probably used to feel, or I may have felt that same way had I gone a different route in my life. Um, it's gotta be hard though. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, this is what I do. Like I know it's legit and yeah. it's gotta be super annoying. It, you know, and I, it's all about your mindset about it because then it's like, well, this is an opportunity to be able to educate somebody and talk to them and then yeah. they can, they can do what they will with it. And it's yeah. not really going to affect my life. And I, yeah. I really, I, I had to come a long way and done a lot of work around my own, um, mindset and how I approach things. But that's how I try to think of it. It's an opportunity to teach somebody. And when it comes down to it, doctor is teacher, right? In Latin. So mm -hmm. that's how I try to capture that. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, from day one, when I went to see you, it was like, here's, cause I think I asked a little bit about like, I want to know some of the evidence behind it because I'm pregnant and this is very important yeah. to me, obviously. And you had 
like all of that ready to go. It wasn't like, oh, I don't know. I mean, you were like, here, let me show you. Because I actually forget, I you did Webster certification. Yes. We're going to talk a little bit about certification in a second, but that was what Webster. Well, yeah, I actually just want you to tell me which ones, but I think you yeah. did Webster for me, yeah. right? Because yes. <laughs> I remember asking for citations for that. And... Yes, and that is the that is the technique for pregnancy specifically um, that the research by the ICPA, which is like our governing body for pediatric and prenatal or perinatal, um, they have done so much research and they they have um, sourced not even just their own research, but other research as well. There's a woman named Heidi Havoc out of New Zealand. Um, who's that's all she does is research and she's doing an amazing job with her collection of things. So it's all about like knowing where to access it. So I do so much prenatal and pediatric or postpartum that the ICPA has all of that on their website, all those resources, whether it's their research or not, that I can easily access and send to people. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one you sent to mm -hmm. me. And so what does the Webster technique help people with? Yes. So the Webster technique was developed to achieve alignment for the birthing mother. So our goal is that you feel good during your pregnancy, but also that baby gets into the best position possible. And that's not directly manipulating baby. We're not, we're, we may assess like, okay, how is baby feeling? Are they in a good LOA position? What is your midwife telling you? What's going on there? We're not doing like an external version procedure by any means that is done by a midwife or an OB. We're affecting mom's body so that baby can find that position of comfort because so often birth outcomes are so dictated by what baby's position is in. Are they a sunny side up baby, like a posterior mm -hmm. presentation, or um, are they kind of coming out sideways or with the side of their head? They're not getting good approximation on the cervix with the crown of their head, so dilation isn't happening. So, so much of that birth outcome can come down to baby's positioning, but I've had lots of women start care with me during pregnancy that have raging sciatica or low back pain and are so fearful to go into labor in pain already. Mm -hmm. Like, how am I going to overcome this? So part of it is building that confidence too, that your body can heal, your body can do this, and we're going to do everything we can to get you there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what happened to me. So I came with birth outcome being my sole outcome, but then couple weeks before I came to see you, I went on vacation and I was walking through the airport and I had sciatica up my back. Like I could barely walk and I came to see you and it went away and never came back like the whole mm -hmm. time, the whole pregnancy. That's amazing. So that was a yeah. wonderful bonus, yes. right? Like, and then I also had the birth that I wanted, which was unmedicated, like vaginal birth after a cesarean. So mm -hmm. it's amazing. Pretty good not, you know, pretty research, but pretty good testimonial and anecdotal yeah. evidence right there. Yes, so. absolutely. I know. Uh, and those, and that is sometimes those case studies, those case reports can be so powerful in themselves because everyone is unique in coming from a different place. And that's why research can be very hard because it doesn't fit every single person. Right. Um, so we do our best interpreting the research, but then suiting it to that individual. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that if anyone's listening and you're like in the future I want to have a baby or I want to have a different experience that is one huge benefit that I I just for me like when I first came I was just like I'm going to do all the things that I'm told to do that way if it doesn't work out I'll be like I did all the things mm -hmm. and um so when you do all the things you can't know exactly what helps but I think all of it very much helped with like feeling of respect for your body and feeling like like you said more confidence and like 
I got this. So absolutely. yeah. And just to have like uh, extra members of your team, all of that. So lots of good yes. there. So, oh yes. So that's Webster. You're certified in like 400 things, but there's a few <laughs> other ones we'll go over. So say the, the Mercier. Mercier therapy. What's that? Yes. So uh, Mercier therapy, that was something I had, I had heard Dr. Mercier speak. I probably on a podcast actually. Um, and I loved her approach to fertility and women's health with, um, endometriosis, PCOS, like all of these things that sometimes incur medical procedures that can build up scar tissue, like, um, like lap procedures or things like that to find endometriosis. And so she had developed this technique to alleviate that restraint of the scar tissue and help improve blood flow to specifically the reproductive organs in a woman's body. And she has amazing outcomes in terms of her fertility rates. And I was just, you know, in the nature of working in the prenatal space, I would have return patients that maybe had some secondary infertility. Like mm -hmm. I got pregnant the first time, no problem, but now what's happening? I'm not getting pregnant again. Um, and I just really wanted to find a way to help that. So it just, you know, so many, many of these interests have grown out of that initial interest in prenatal care. So I found Dr. Mercier, thought about doing her technique for the longest time. It's a very expensive certification to do. So it's always like you got to figure out what to spend your money on first. And I finally went for it. And I, I do a lot of that. It's an hour long session with patients. And it, the protocol is once a week for six weeks where we are really focusing on the mobility and the release of those internal organs, specifically the pelvic reproductive organs. Mm -hmm. So okay. it's super fun. Um, a lot of times I'll also do hormone testing on patients, try to figure out what's happening there where we could be supportive. So it's not only that manual technique, but I bring the functional medicine piece into, let's talk about nutrition, specifically blood sugar balance. Let's talk about maybe some supportive supplementation, lifestyle. So much of that can go into fertility as well. Yeah. Nice. And no one knows about these things really. Like, yeah. is that like, Yes. I don't know. I didn't know any of this. Right? Yeah. I just finished up care with a patient who actually moved here from California and she, she, I think also had her Dr. Mercier on a podcast or something and was like dealing with infertility, wanted to do Mercier therapy, did not think anybody in Michigan would possibly be certified because all that stuff is in California or on the West coast. Uh -huh. And I think she said I'm the only person certified in Michigan. I did think there was one other person in Kalamazoo, but I could be mistaken or maybe she moved, but uh -huh. yeah. So yeah, it's, wow. That is, um, Yep. You're a gem. People are lucky to be right <laughs> next to you. I'm like right by you. So I know you are. Awesome. It took me like five minutes to drive here from my office. Yeah. yeah. So, very cool. Okay. Well, so obviously on this podcast, we talk about moving away from ineffective dieting BS and help, you know, helping people stop spinning their wheels on stuff that doesn't work and, and focus on things that actually improves their health. So, what have you seen in your practice in terms of women having a hard time with maybe focusing too much on their weight or moving away from diet culture? What are some of the things that you're seeing a lot with the women you work with? I do think, and maybe this is a product of social media. I think social media could really drive a lot of body dysmorphic issues depending on how you use it. But I'm also feeling like there's even more women coming out against that and sharing what their postpartum body looks like, for example, mm -hmm. or um, sharing, um, you know, their struggles with weight and diet culture and, and trying to go away from that and instead mm -hmm. 
find a way to nourish their bodies and think about food in a way that is supportive to them and healing Mm -hmm. to them instead. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've, I mean, I've talked to so many women who just, I mean, growing up in, you know, the nineties and early two thousands, I feel like every teen magazine I ever bought was all like, eat this for four days and lose 10 pounds or, you know, like do the walk diet, do this diet. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And I think we were so inundated with that. And maybe it is still, but I feel, I feel more of a push away from that. And for women to not feel like they need to have a perfect body, mm-hmm. wherever that may have come from. Maybe it was from having a mother who commented a lot on her own body or commented on, you know, her daughter's body or having a boyfriend or somebody that triggered something to start like a journey of weight loss and restriction. Mm-hmm. And I think too, with such a, such a, push for more mental health and people to be open about that, to talk through that as well has really helped so many women in my experience to be able Mm -hmm. to work through some of those issues and the, um, habits that they had formed around foods or the rituals they had formed around foods of like, well, I'm not going to eat any carbs with dinner because I can't go to sleep on that carbohydrate cushion or, Mm -hmm. you know, so trying to work through like, why was I even doing that? Like, What was Mm -hmm. I trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. So I think that's been really cool is that push away from that. And instead, um, when a patient asks me for what can I eat for this? What can I eat for that? It's like, well, what do you like to eat? Mm -hmm. What, what makes you feel good? And instead putting it back on them to find out what they enjoy. Do you, you probably see most women in like on the younger, well, like, so do you see reproductive years? Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if that might be a generational thing because I tend to see people across like probably up to, I see it, I see movement in all generations, but I feel like maybe the folks that are like in their fifties or sixties, I might see a little bit of like more diet culture focus, whereas maybe our generation that, so that's good to hear, Mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah, I just wonder, and I don't know. That's definitely anecdotal, but like no, we're seeing a shift, but yeah. it might be easier in some groups, and maybe the yeah. folks that you're seeing too, you're like seeing a select sample as well mm-hmm. of like people who are looking at their health really holistically, perhaps, or they wouldn't be able to be right. willing to be open to seeing you. So. Exactly. That is one thing I love about my job is I typically am working with somebody who wants to achieve um, better health. Mm-hmm. And they are very familiar with a lot of these topics already. They just maybe mm-hmm. don't know how to implement them in their life or just want to gain some of those tools. So yeah. I always tell people I will never make I will never make a meal plan for you, but we can talk through suggestions and maybe habits around food. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So that's promising and good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. it might I think I think we have a long ways to go, but I do agree that I see positive progress. Yeah. So that's, Absolutely. So that's nice. Yeah. yeah. Are there any um, results that you can share? I already shared my result, which was incredible in coming to see you. But are there other any results, obviously, identified of someone who achieved significant benefits um, from seeking out your, your services? And I guess before we jump into that, I guess we didn't talk specifically about functional medicine because I know that's also something. So when we think about your services, we are talking about that too. Maybe we can real quick touch on what that is because that's another one that I don't think people know really what functional medicine is. I don't even think I fully know. So let's start there and then we'll talk about the examples. Yeah. 
Yeah. So functional medicine is root cause resolution. So there, I, I sometimes think of like the celebrity doctors, right? Like the Mark Hyman's of the world or mm-hmm. like these different celebrity doctors who have really gotten the ball rolling on this, um, where it's not so much a search and destroy technique of like, you have high blood pressure, so let's put you on propranol or whatever. It's more like, but why do you have high blood pressure? Do you have a lot of stress in your life? Um, are you having exposures to heavy metals? Um, which again, you know, kind of going results based. Um, I just had a case like that with a, a farmer that young guy in his thirties has had high blood pressure, lots of stress, lots of, um, toxic elements that he has been exposed to. And it's just, you know, asking those questions of why and being able to investigate it. So that way you can create a treatment plan for people that's based around like small, but meaningful change that they can implement tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It's not anything they have to, you know, spend a lot of money on to do. It's just being able to go to bed a little earlier or be more protected when you're working around some of those chemicals or even get a different job. I I have Mm -hmm. had to tell that to people before. Like if you really want to achieve your health outcomes, you may need to consider a different career. So that is, you know, functional medicine in a nutshell, where we bring in the lifestyle medicine piece of it with um, habits around our sleep, our stress, our thoughts, feelings, emotions, all that kind of stuff. But then our nutrition, um, targeted supplementation, depending on what they have going on. And then also that piece that they are on medication, being able to advocate with their doctor to be willing to help them come off of it as things improve. So that's Mm -hmm. not, I don't take patients off medication, but it's something I will ask them, like, make sure you're staying on top of this. If your blood pressure goes too low, we know that can be more dangerous than high blood pressure. We don't want you to pass out while you're driving or something. Mm -hmm. So that needs to be continue to be monitored and then dealt with appropriately on that medical end. And then as those more medical interventions start to disappear, the supplementation and that kind of stuff, will also disappear over time. It's not anything you have to do forever as we get get it under control. Yeah, so all of that functional medicine, but also just like generally what you do is really looking at, I can often be visual and I feel like I've shared a lot on the podcast, like my vision of sort of like the a tree and at least from a psychological standpoint, like how we all have like these different symptoms of branches that might be like an eating concern or anxiety, depression, or even just like, toxic relationship patterns but the core at the root is like core beliefs about ourselves and self-doubt and it for for you you're working at the root of your own tree it's just as opposed to you might look at symptoms and and monitor them but it's always stepping back and looking at the whole picture and looking at Mm -hmm. what's underneath and so that's that's a helpful description of what functional medicine is yeah okay nice So going back to my other question that I already asked and backtracked on, so are there some, you've already shared some results, but Mm -hmm. are there any stories that you really want to share that kind of will show some of the ways that you are addressing this root cause Mm -hmm. with people? Yeah, I, um, I guess when it comes to the functional medicine piece of it, the thing that I get the most joy and benefit from is the women who are dealing with autoimmune disease that has yet to be truly identified. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of things that they're experiencing look very autoimmune. 
we have clues on objective testing, but maybe their ANA is negative or their rheumatoid factor is negative or whatever. And it's like, nobody can help them. Nobody can give them anything to do until they're in that state. They're in a full blown autoimmune state. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can see the train coming. So it's like, let's step off of the tracks before it hits us. So Mm -hmm. that's like what I love working on, especially when it comes to women's health. And it seems to happen more often to women than men um, that their medical symptoms are dismissed. And it's just like, let's just wait and see what happens. And then when you're like full blown, then we'll put you on steroids and we'll do all this other stuff. And I've just seen the I've seen the snowball effect of what happens once you go down that road. Mm -hmm. So really trying to explain that to people. I mean, just so many countless, like I just have like my Rolodex of patients running through my head that have fallen into that category and are like, why has nobody ever told me this before? Like, Mm -hmm. why hasn't anybody ever explained my blood work to me before? And it's not a overnight change. Like we implement things, it's not going to change overnight. So it's also that, that um, being realistic with people on how long it takes, like it took you a long time to get here. It's going to take a little bit to dig yourself back out. Yeah. Um, when you say autoimmune, that's a big umbrella of terms, right? Like, yeah. so what are some, I know some of the examples, but what would yeah. some, be some examples of autoimmune conditions or diseases? Yeah. So like thyroid, such a common one would be Hashimoto's, which is yeah. more of like on that low functioning thyroid end of the spectrum where yep. we start to see that inflammatory component coming back. I see yep. a lot of that. I've caught a lot of that before it's become full blown Hashimoto's where maybe a patient is being dismissed by their doctor. But I'm like, why does your TSH keep going up though? And that's the only test they're having run is just a TSH, which can fluctuate depending on the time of day or what you have going on when you get that test done. Let's get more information because there's a trend here that I I don't like seeing. I don't like that this continues going up. So that is like probably one of the most common ones that I will see and work with would be Mm -hmm. that Hashimoto's picture. I've had a couple of cases of Graves, which is more of that hyperthyroid, which is harder to treat from a functional medicine perspective. It's more like managing the symptoms of the anxiety and blood pressure stuff. Um, unless Graves they can... always makes me think of Gail Devers. Did you know Gail Devers? No. She's the Olympian, and I did a report on her in high school. But anyways, it's a really tough disease. It is. It's, it's really tough. Yeah. yeah. And it's not as common. I don't – I've only had, like, maybe one or two people I can think of. Okay. And they've been more in, like, that kind of – they will fluctuate between, like, a hypo and hyper also. Like, that can happen with postpartum. I would say that is my most common thing, but I've seen some rheumatoid arthritis – I've seen some patients with Crohn's, which is more of a digestive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I mean, I think we have to put diabetes in there, um, that whole like blood sugar spectrum and what's happening in the pancreas. So definitely mm-hmm. have seen that and and caught some of that stuff in the very, very early stages. And does PCOS fall into that category? Um, PCOS, I, I don't believe that is so much autoimmune. Like okay. there are so many causes of PCOS. Yeah. Whether it's more on that like estrogen dominance because of detoxification pathways not working or not ovulating or so many or like blood sugar. And PCOS um, is a syndrome, so it can mm-hmm. be have all these different Yeah. I so many someone causes. recently about PCOS, so I'm still trying to learn. Yes. But it's yeah. so that is okay. Yeah. yeah, so because it's a syndrome it's actually really right. hard. Yeah. Endometriosis is sort of being category categorized in that immune inflammatory, like cytokine storm type of thing as well, but it's not 
completely classified as autoimmune. And is, I guess even with the definition of autoimmune is that this idea of like your body sort of fighting itself, your yeah. immune system fighting itself? Or yeah, attacking something? a tissue. Yeah. And a lot okay. of times they, they like to come in multiples. So uh-huh. autoimmune diseases love company. So it may start out as one thing and it can kind of morph or add on to other things as well. So, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Well that, that helps me to put it into context yes. too. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then are there, I've, I've been seeing and hearing more and more lately women being told they need to lose weight to have a healthy pregnancy. Have you seen or heard that often? What are some things that women are being told with regards to like fertility as it relates to their weight? Oh yeah. That, I mean, especially when it comes to the, um, um, fertility stuff, I think so often it's like, well, eat less, exercise more. And that's kind of all they're told. Um, I know that there's, yeah, exactly. And there is so much, um, conflicting information out there about what the best fertility diet is. There are like the hardcore, hardcore, like vegan plant-based people. There are like the hardcore keto people because it's all blood sugar stuff. So like you don't want any carbohydrates in your diet. Um, and so there's a lot of really conflicting information when it comes to that in the fertility space, Mm -hmm. I find maybe not so much pregnancy, although if women are going into pregnancy with extra weight on, or they're gaining a lot of weight during pregnancy, or they have, um, high blood pressure or, um, gestational diabetes or something, like if they're starting to display some of those risk factors, they'll start to talk about it. And Lily Nichols is a dietitian and she has amazing information, Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to just very sound nutrition for pregnancy, Mm -hmm. um, and what that kind of means with weight. But I would say with the fertility stuff, it just goes back again to, I think the best thing you can do for yourself is eating what makes you feel good. And Mm -hmm. if you are displaying some signs of insulin resistance, what can we do to help with that? Whether Mm -hmm. it is like maybe more plants in your diet, more fiber in your diet, trying to like add things, than tell people they need to like be in a very, you know, like tunnel vision, this specific diet. I don't find that to be very effective. Right. And often people are told just lose weight. So they think calorie monitoring or these standard approaches. And then that can, from what I'm learning, at least when I'm just starting to learn, like that can really set people off to the place where they're not reproductively doing well. And so like when you're restricting calories, typically what people do they yeah. think about it as it's got to be calories in versus calories out and that right. um yeah we look at like food quality but like you said it's like pretty tailored like there's not like even when we study these big patterns of people like nutrition patterns and what works it's like we can't control for everything so mm-hmm. you have to consider preferences too right exactly uh, yes all of that stuff absolutely um are there any other examples where, that you've seen where um, problems people are experiencing are blamed on their weight and we're missing this other cause. Oh my gosh. I think that goes back to the thyroid stuff so much, so much thyroid stuff being missed. Oh, Mm -hmm. just a ton. Um, and it's because again, that TSH test is the only one that's run a lot of times for like a standard, like if somebody goes into their doctor and asks, can you check my thyroid? Very rare. Will they get more than just a TSH level? And that only gives us a very small kind of Like that would be my least favorite test to run for the thyroid. So we miss tons of that, um, tons of that autoimmune kind of inflammatory generated um, piece of it. Um, And like I will explain to patients so often with 
when it comes to weight gain, what will happen first, especially with like insulin resistance, we'll start to take on those triglycerides in our liver. We'll start to gain it between our organs and then we'll get more of that subcutaneous um, weight gain or fat deposition. And that's how it will leave our body as well. So you may not see significant weight loss when you start to make lifestyle change in the very beginning, because it's also going to leave the liver first between the organs second and then subcutaneous after that. So I would say like the thyroid stuff and the insulin resistance, which calorie counting without paying attention to like what the foods actually are that you're eating is going to drive that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So always like quality, really the quality matters so much more than like quantity. Of course, quantity matters to an extent. Yeah. It's not like it doesn't matter, but right. it's like not really the message that we're given. The message is it's calories in and out. It's this little scale and yeah. it, Exactly. Eat half of a bagel with cream cheese instead of a whole bagel with cream cheese. Right. Everything in moderation. Yes. Everything in moderation. Okay. (laughs) I know that was actually diet advice that my, I love my dad so much. I remember him giving me that piece of diet advice when I had asked him about it in like high school. Cause you know, like everybody wants to like be super skinny in high school. And I was one of those people. And, um, I remember him telling me that and I was like, Oh, okay. Well, as long as I can just, if I could just have and nothing else. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if my mom will listen to this, but she also would be like, well, I just did this and it was really easy. And I was like, well, that's not working for me. I like, know. Just like, I just, you know, stopped eating after 12 hours. I'm like, well, it, my body won't do that. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, exactly. And I do think like you just like not eating, um, having very long, like intermittent fasting, where your metabolism is like, okay, like I'm just going to hang on to all of this fuel because you're not feeding me. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also another one where people aren't eating enough and mm-hmm. they're gaining weight. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Have you seen, inter- have you seen intermittent fasting work for anyone? I have seen it. I will say it can be helpful for getting insulin, increasing insulin sensitivity, Uh depending on the patient, especially if patients aren't hungry in the morning, as long, you know, it's like, are you going to sleep at an appropriate time? Like kind of what's happening there. But if you're not hungry in the morning, that's okay. Like it's, it's good to listen to those cues, but that may change. So Mm -hmm. I think you should always listen to the cues on what your body is trying to explain to you. So. Yeah, I have not, like, I'm open to it. it. might be useful for some people. Most people that I work with, like, if you're struggling with binge eating, it can be, a, like, really not that helpful. Right, exactly. But, I I mean, yeah, so I was just curious because I'm like, I don't think it's, like, a hard and fast no for everyone. But, right. like, I haven't seen it work much for work, meaning, like, work to help people, like, feel good, not work in terms of weight loss. But mm-hmm. also, yeah, so that's just interesting. But, yes, if you're – doing it in a rigid way at all, not listening to cues, that's very unlikely to work. And yeah. yet, yeah. So, okay. Totally. <laughs> um, so moving on to our motivation question. So what is one thing that you truly have intrinsic motivation for? So you do it for the inherent satisfaction from the behavior. So either you enjoy it, you find it interesting and or challenging, kind of enjoyable in its own right. Yes. Oh my gosh. My husband would just shake his head if he heard my answer to this, but I love learning and I could be like a student. If somebody could pay me to be a student, I would be like a student. I'm not that surprised. Look at all the certifications you have. (laughs) Exactly. And I love like that achievement piece of being like, 
you have completed all of this coursework and now you can like put this on your resume or you can tell people, you can go on a podcast and tell people like uh-huh. with just finishing up my official like functional medicine certification, like I just really wanted to have that because I do functional medicine. I have a lot of training in it, but I didn't have a specific certification. Yeah. And when I started the coursework, it was like 300 hours of coursework. And I was like, this is going to take me a long time to get through. And I started it in March and I actually just finished it this weekend. And I was like, should I take the final exam? It was like Sunday. Should I take the final exam? Yes, I just like want to have this done. And you're be motivated done with by it. checkboxes. Yeah, I am by checkboxes, which is so. And part of that goes back to my earlier comment about writing that message to myself in middle school because I used to not be that way. I feel like I was very lazy when it came to school when I was in my early years, like my um, like grade school and middle school. And it wasn't because I wasn't smart. It was just, I didn't want to apply myself. I didn't want to take the time to do it because there were other things I wanted to do. Yeah. And that's like why I like wrote that message to myself. Like just, you just need to do this. Promise yourself that you will do this. Yeah. Um, I wonder what that's about because there's like, clearly there's a lot of intrinsic motivation there, but it just wasn't like channeled in the right way at school. Mm -hmm. It seems like where, whether that was the education system or something else, or you hadn't figured out how to like listen to yourself and what was really, do you know what I mean? Like there's something that shifted Mm -hmm. that like it really, it's not because so often in the, obviously in this podcast, we talk about motivation and people are like, I'm just, I'm lazy. I'm just not motivated. And really it's like, what are you motivated for? At that time, you're motivated for other things, mm-hmm. but it sounds like to me, the education system, just whatever was in front of you wasn't super thrilling to you, maybe mm-hmm. would be another way to think about it. Oh, I think that that is 100% such a big piece of it because I am a very good independent learner. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time when I would sit in my classes in college, I had such a hard time or even chiropractic school, like sitting and listening to a lecture. I would much rather just take the notes home, take the book home and read it. Mm-hmm. and like watch YouTube videos if I really needed to like clarify like the Krebs cycle or something like that if I needed more of a visual. Yeah. But um, yeah, I had, I think that that is like such a big part of it. It was just the strategy and I find a lot of intrinsic motivation to like read a lot of books. Like I love reading books and listening to podcasts and like finding things that I'm really interested in that I want to learn more about. Yeah. But did you like reading books like in college or in school? I Yeah, I did. You as did. long as it was okay. like stuff that I wanted to Uh read or learn more about, you know, there would be certain topics I'd get just so fixated on, but if I wasn't interested in it, I had a really hard time, like actually doing this coursework associated with it, especially when I was younger and I didn't have kind of that morality piece overriding, like you're paying a lot of money for this education. Mm -hmm. Cause I think that's a piece of it too, especially with chiropractic school, which I had to pay for on my own. And this functional medicine certification or the Mercier therapy, like I'm paying for it. I want to get it done and do a good job with it. So there's also that. Yeah. You know, yeah. That that's, piece. those are good examples. I can definitely relate to most of that. Like, I think I have really strong intrinsic, very strong intrinsic drive to learn about all these things. That's like part of the reason I do this podcast. Yeah. Like I'm not getting much of any money for it. Right. Like yeah. maybe one day, but Um, they, that drive is really strong, but yeah, I didn't, I would never read the books in college. Like I would just sign up for all the classes that had really good lectures and like good note taking would get you through the test. Like I hated reading Mm -hmm. in college. Well, cause textbooks are very boring. (laughs) Like unless it was like something you completely loved learning about. Like, yeah. So I can, 
I can relate to that too. So that's at least, and it's interesting because self-determination theory has like all these different areas that they've studied and they definitely studied education. And I think there is like a lot of evidence that ex- education is very external control based. So even though you like get intrinsic motivation from grades and check boxes or like, you know, like finishing things yeah. that, yeah, there's something about the education system that wasn't fostering that intrinsic yeah. motivation. I think that's true for a lot of kids and like adults, mm-hmm. <laughs> but everyone's different too. Everyone yeah. learns differently. So, yeah. It's- and I, I, and you may find this like so interesting from a mental health perspective and maybe this is not a healthy um, habit that I'm in, but I have to be like, which is why I love listening to things. I love podcasts. I love like all that functional medicine training. There were like videos that went with it, but you're listening to a lecture and I could absorb so much more stuff if I was listening to it while I was cleaning or out on a walk or doing yard work or like, Mm -hmm. I just, I was able to like absorb it so much better than just sitting in front of my computer watching a lecture yeah. And I think that that's really where, like, in grade school, I had, a, like, because I couldn't be doing other things, so there's probably a little hyperactivity with that, where mm-hmm. I, I need to be, like, moving and, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's different components to it, I think, but, um, but yeah, just knowing how you learn, but then also knowing, like, if there is some, like, other factor, like, mm-hmm. um, I've recently had someone on about, like, ADHD and, and just learning about that and, like, how there's very underdiagnosed in women. So this yeah. area is that not saying that that's the case for you, but I think like there's lots of different ways that we learn best and there's lots of different factors with it. So mm-hmm. hopefully there'll be like more flexibility mm-hmm. for students moving forward, but I don't know. Yeah. I know I want my kids to be able to like find autonomous motivation and love of learning sooner than I did because I didn't really have that like I just was like I'm getting I'm here for the grades and then later <laughs> I figured out and I'm sure everyone has their own path with that too so mm-hmm. and I feel like this question is kind of related to something a little bit but like this idea of a behavior that used to be a should and then you've kind of shifted that to more like a should being external motivation but shifting it to more internal over time mm-hmm. um, can you think of any examples of that for you I really think it goes back to that other piece of that. I should do this. And yeah, in the be- especially in the beginning of my career, um, when I first graduated school and it's kind of like, I should, I should be continuing to learn and get more certifications or like really figure out my niche. But I just, I, I was so overwhelmed, like, because I didn't know what that was And once I kind of figured that out, it really turned that should turn into like something I really felt compelled to do because I found that interest and it was Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I want to do this. Like I want to do all this ICPA training for my pregnancy and pediatric chiropractic population. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I want to get the certification in functional medicine, even though I already do a lot of it and I've already learned a lot of it. I need to have that to like, be able to progress my career. So, so much has changed, especially since I opened my own practice, the shoulds become like things I want to do because I see the benefit, whether it's, you know, in like the monthly revenue of my practice, because that's how you keep your doors open and keep serving people. Or Mm -hmm. I was able to bring my husband on and like being able to work on things together too has been really fun. So I think just in that learning, um, 
I, I've had a lot of should moments that have turned into like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Like I got it done and yeah, it sounds like, like, uh, sort of a learning process of like learning how to listen to your intuition a bit about like what appeals and then you experience like, oh wow, that I was certainly right about that. That's super interesting. I don't know if that absolutely like it's a, it's a learned skill, I think. And like listening to our intuition, whether it's intuitive eating or like, intuitive movement or and like mm-hmm. intuition about career intuition is not like just how we feel it's combined with yeah like what we know about ourselves and what we think would be useful and facts and so mm-hmm. I don't Absolutely. know if that sounds right to you yeah and it it has also helped me to feel more confident and effective with working with patients also yeah. so I think that that helps so much like to build that motivation because I can see every day I go into the office where it's like whoa I didn't know that information was rattling around in there but there it was and I could pull it out and use it in this example yeah um so I think that that just kind of keeps you motivated yeah for sure so tell people where they can learn more about the work you're doing and connect with you. Yes. So my practice, Flow Cairo, so flowcairo.com is my website. Um, we also have an Instagram page, but I just created my own. Now that my husband's in my practice, I felt like I needed to branch out and have my own branded stuff. So it's mm-hmm. um, Dr. Dot Teresa Osmer is my own Instagram. Okay. Um, so yeah, those are like the main places. Cool. Yeah. We'll link all of those in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for your time and your many, many areas of expertise. Very much appreciated. Thank you for having me. This was great. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, and I hope you learned a lot. I'm going to go over some main takeaways and also kind of share some a little bit more about my story and some of my thoughts about the ways that more, I guess, alternative uh, techniques or providers might be able to help you with whatever you are struggling with. So first of all, the, the main thing we learned is that chiropractic care and training is very much rooted in science. The scientific method is skeptical at its core, and I think that's where I get my skepticism. I'm very skeptical of lots of things, and that I think is okay, but I think it's okay also to broaden your views and keep an open mind, right? And so Dr. Osmer very quickly proved to me in this conversation and in my visits with her that uh, I had wrong views about the fact that chiropractic care is very rooted in research and evidence and the biopsychosocial model and looking at your symptoms and you as a person as a whole. And you don't get addicted to it. Like I said, you I actually don't go to her actively for any adjustments, but I do sometimes go to her when I'm trying to figure out what my next step is, whether that's physical therapy, or um, I'm actually starting a new strength training program, and I wanted to get her thoughts on what would be the best one, and I got a really great recommendation, so I'm super excited about that. The other main takeaway is that functional medicine is about root cause resolution. So standard medical care has limited time for visits, increasing pressures, our healthcare system is obviously very problematic, and there's less and less time for your providers to get to know you as a person. Additionally, care is very piecemeal, right? So you see one provider for your heart, another for reproduction and fertility, another one for your back pain, and functional medicine and chiropractic providers 
can provide a whole person perspective and care and sometimes provide alternatives you've not considered. So they can also help you discover things that might be missing in standard care. So one example that Dr. Osmer talks about that's common is thyroid concerns and autoimmune conditions, catching them before they become full blown. So standard medical definitely standard medical care definitely has its place right but it does miss the mark a lot particularly for women so the more i learn the more concerned i am with how infrequently we're getting good evidence-based solutions out into the world and this is across all domains and we know on this podcast that that is a reality and that is a problem in the field which is one of the things i love doing in this podcast is sort of disseminating effective actual evidence but I wouldn't have known about any of this if I hadn't gone down my deep dive into the world of birth outcomes as an attempt to have a safe uh, vaginal birth after my cesarean section. So, you know, like I said, standard medical care and these alternative cares can be a complement to each other. So like anything, there is a balance here. And I think you do have to be cautious about not necessarily just assuming there's something there that standard medicine is missing all of the time because that can lead to a lot of anxiety. Um, I've worked in health psychology. We see a lot of somatic symptoms, which doesn't mean symptoms in your head per se. It just means there's not an organic cause. And it's tough because we can never test for everything and know 100% there's not something going on. But if you become too obsessed with something is wrong with me, it's always a balance of using your intuition getting evidence-based information from different providers, but not always assuming something's wrong because stress in itself can cause a lot of symptoms. So it's always a balance, but I, like I said, I will always be a big fan of standard medicine in many ways. I am, I had a cesarean for my first birth, like I said, and Although I do think it probably could have been avoided, I also think that given the scenario at that present time, and in many cases, it can absolutely be a life-saving surgery. So we do, you know, there's a place for, there's a place for everything, but we do have to look at the data. And I, you know, I looked up in, after I did this, listened to this interview, the, just as a reminder, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but the standard rates of cesarean births in the U.S. is about one in three. This has gone up 68% since 1979. And unfortunately, this particular article actually explains that this trend, they explain it in terms of increases in obesity and hypertension, which frankly is really frustrating because like so many things, correlation does not imply cause. And so I think that this is another example of standard medical care failing women. Um, I was definitely in that category. My, I mean, it's hard because my midwife practice that I switched to, it is a particular sample. I have a lot of privilege in these areas and the practice may have had a higher sample of more privileged people. I don't know that data offhand, but they published their rates and their C-section rate is 90, uh, I'm sorry, their C-section rate is 8% instead of close to over 30%. So what I'm saying is provider plays a major role and yet we often blame patient factors, right? Like weight or other factors that are blaming the patient for having this outcome when the reality is we know that 
the provider plays a big role in this. And people don't really know this. This is something that I had no idea. I had done a lot of research before my first pregnancy, and I had seen that like having a doula to advocate for you reduces the C-section rate, but I just assumed I wouldn't have a C-section. I don't know why, because one out of three people do. And, um, and I will say too, that hopefully you know this about me, I made the choice to go for what's called a VBAC, vaginal birth after C-section, but I think it's a very valid choice to have a repeat C-section. I thought about it a lot, but I really believe in informed consent and autonomy. And what I didn't appreciate is people suggesting to me that I was pursuing an unsafe option when that wasn't actually true. When you look at the data, what I pursued is a very safe option given my scenario. So what it comes down to is that we need to be better at supporting women's autonomy for their body. So informed consent and autonomy support is an ethical an ethical obligation of any provider, as well as just, I had a lot of people questioning, like I thought once you had a C-section, you always needed to. And some of that came from just not understanding, which is make makes sense, but, you know, implying that it's definitely safe, unsafe. Um, I was definitely told that a couple times and it's um, pretty fairly insulting when that's not actually true. So, Anyways, um, like I said, if you want to know more about these topics, uh, let me know. Or if it's not of interest to you, that's I, I won't be offended. But main takeaway number uh, six is that you, you may need to do a bit of digging to get to the best solution to your problems. Uh, again, medical care and healthcare system has a lot of issues. So there might be solutions to your concerns you had no idea existed. So I had no idea what Webster technique was. I had no idea it could improve my sciatica pain in the middle of the pregnancy. So I didn't have to cringe every time I walked. And that was a lovely side benefit that I didn't even go there for. I didn't know anything about Mercier, Mercier therapy that Dr. Osmer talked about. And I certainly wasn't aware of how often we're missing things like autoimmune conditions. So there's a lot of room for improvement. And I mean, you don't want to just, you know, only look at, you know, Google and, and do your own care. That is not what I'm saying, but finding providers who are evidence-based. And, and my final point is really searching for providers who are lifelong learners, right? So I know I, know, I want a provider who's going to stay up on the literature and the research and be constantly learning because the reality is, the ways we think about health and wellness are not only outdated, just like most things, many times are not evidence-based, like looking at the weight management field. And there are effective interventions out there, but providers have to be willing to stay up on the research and being able to kind of continue to adapt and change over time because the reality is that we are learning and getting new research all the time. That's the good thing, but most of the time people are not getting that information. So we have to work harder to disseminate or get that information out into the public. All right, I really hope you enjoyed this. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about this episode. Um, if this is a topic that's interesting to you, uh, clearly I could talk about it a lot. So let me know, can't wait to hear from you and have a wonderful day. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. 
Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.